0: When you hear online or digital business, you probably think e-commerce, SaaS, maybe content and affiliate websites. Well, there's another category that gets overlooked, including by me, productized services. These are businesses that deliver a service remotely via the internet, but for a flat fee. So you're not charging by the hour and the scope of work is well-defined. Think Fiverr where you pay a contractor a flat fee to deliver a particular self-contained service. This is a productized service model, versus Upwork, a more traditional model, where you pay a contractor typically on a rolling hourly basis based on the duration of your project. Well, this model of productized services is increasingly popular and available for all manner of services delivered online. Design your logo, write your resume, social media clips, explainer videos, and podcast production, which is the service offered by the business that today's guest, Carl Hughes, bought. Carl is well-versed in these types of services, being the owner of a content agency already that offers a productized service. So Carl and I go deep on why productized services are appealing as businesses to own. Hopefully, this conversation opens your eyes to another type of business you might consider in your search. Here is Carl Hughes, owner of the Podcast Consultant. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs, and on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. I want to share an update on the Acquisition Lab. As you know, the lab is a highly vetted, cohort-based accelerator and community for people serious about buying a business. After going through the lab's month-long intensive, you have ongoing access to almost daily Q&A sessions with advisors, regular live deal reviews with Walker Dybel, author of Buy Then Build, potential deal team introductions, and a very active Slack group with other searchers on the path. Well, the update is that the lab recently passed 60 businesses acquired and for well over $100 million in aggregate transaction value. Also, all members now enjoy lifetime access to the lab because when you buy a business, it's often just the first of many and the lab wants to support you in every deal, not just your first. Lastly, check out my recent interview with Shane Ursum, episode 105. Shane acquired a business with over a million dollars in EBITDA in just six months, and he attributes a lot of his deal success to what he learned in the lab. Check out acquisitionlab.com or email the lab's director, Chelsea Wood, chelsea at buyvenbuild.com. Carl Hughes, welcome to Acquiring Minds. Good to be here, Will. Thanks for having me. Carl, you bought a podcast production agency. I am going to try to avoid using the word meta in this conversation, uh, which is happening on my podcast. We'll see how I do. Uh, But we're going to hear your story of buying this business. And we are going to explore the concept of productized services, which is a category of business that digital entrepreneurs know well, but people who are focused on more sweaty offline businesses may be less familiar with. Before we get into it, Carl, let's start off with some background on you, please. Sure.
1: Yeah. Um, So after college, I uh, was a software engineer for a couple early stage startups here in Chicago, where I moved to. Um, And in that process, I kind of got to, I was the first employee actually like twice. Uh, And that was a really great insight into like what it takes to run a small business. Now, these were These were companies that were raising angel and VC money. So it was a little different than, you know, starting your own, your own business from scratch or bootstrapping, but certainly gave me a good insight into what founders deal with and kind of got me on this track of entrepreneurship. And then about three years ago now, I started my first business called draft.dev that does, um, technical content marketing aimed at software engineers. So it's a super niche thing. Um, Obviously, like my background in software engineering, plus my I enjoy writing, that kind of like made it a good fit for me as a a first business. And then uh, it took off really quickly. And so the kind of backstory and how this fits into the podcast production agency, because they are two separate companies, we didn't like buy them and merge them together. Um, But basically uh, about a year and a half ago, I was starting to reflect um, as the company was growing, my team was getting more mature and kind of taking on more of the day to day stuff. I was kind of thinking, like, what do I want to do with myself? And I I was toying around with the idea of maybe selling the business and then figuring out something else or doing something completely different, like writing a book just for the heck of it and see, you know, take some time off. And I kind of I realized, though, as I was thinking more and more, like I, I really wanted to build something bigger than just this one you know, very niche productized service or online service business. Um, but I wasn't sure exactly what to do. And then I kind of got into the, the ETA crowd through, um, I, I guest speak at, at, uh, Northwestern university every quarter with their MBA program. And so, um, I got to know some, some people going through that and going to the ETA and I was like, oh, this sounds really cool. Maybe that's something I could look into. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure like a lot of your, your listeners kind of snowballed. I, I read, uh, build or buy then build. And I, I got to go to the, the ETA conference last year and I started to, to, research, and we can get into all that stuff.
0: <laughs> cool. Yeah, well, Northwestern and uh, its neighbor University of Chicago yeah. Booth Business School there uh, are two, particularly Booth actually, are two big names in the um, ETA space. The conference you were at was probably the joint conference that those two yep, schools do, right? right? Yeah, yep. yeah. Very cool. And let me just um, when you let's just hear a little bit on the on the business that you founded, which is just to re- repeat again for the audience and a content. Um, production agency, written content, SEO content, uh, but targeted at developers. So this isn't your you know top five coffee machine content. this right. is this is content that does have to serve the purpose of SEO, but not only it's got to actually ha- you know ha- have credibility. With yeah, the, de- the the developer audience and anybody from the world of tech knows that developers are a uh, finicky, grumpy bunch. And mm-hmm. so they can sniff out BS. So it's really, it's really, um, you got to really produ- be producing good stuff, uh, yeah. really good content and, and really understanding your your audience. Well, can you give us some bullet points on the size of this business today?
1: Yeah. So, you know, the first year I started, it was like, a, you know, I was like half year and I was just doing it half time as I was transitioning out of the last job I had. Um, so we, I don't know, we did 50K in revenue, something like that. And then the next year we did a million, started to hire a team, really started to like, think about how this thing would grow, started to like hire a salesperson, get out of the day to day there. And then last year in 22, we did two and a half million in revenue. And um, so, you know, it's, as, it's not huge by any means as a service business goes, but because we've um, you know, we're, we're online and what we offer is, we're all remote and we're very process driven. And what we offer is very contained, this very specific service offering. It's not like a, a, a freestyle consulting. We do everything for everybody type business. It's a lot easier to sort of make that into a repeatable service that you can hire and put other people in place to run. So my team now does most of the day-to-day work there. And, um, you know, I was able to, to do that pretty quickly because I was very intentional about it. Um, just knowing myself, I, I get bored quickly. So I was really trying to build a business and that was one of my big constraints, like build a business that I could take a month off of and it wouldn't fall to the ground. And so I did that mm-hmm. last year when my son was born. that was really a, an awesome, like kind of, um, test of how the team has gelled, how the, the company works without me. It was really great to see everybody kind of excel and, and do their own thing without me having to be in every call or overseeing everybody on a daily basis.
0: Well, Carl, that's, uh, Powerful for a number of reasons. First of all, congratulations on starting a successful business from scratch. Congratulations, <laughs> congratulations on rapid growth, which I'm going to circle back to. Congratulations on having the foresight to make it something where you can step out of. Um, I avoid the word passive income, but right, but, yeah, it's know, never a, a, yeah. <laughs> si- a systematic business where there's yeah. less. You know, every you know every everything. is Yeah, this is more systematized. Is a, is a more um, less headache i mean there's there's countless yeah, benefits to that all of which my yeah. audiences will, will will already know um and um there was something else i was going to say about that um h- how are margins in a business like this by the way can you share yeah that
1: you? so typically you know it, it can vary quite a bit in these kind of service businesses and draft dev being going through that quick growth i actually think our margins were worse like as we were growing fast then yeah. then they will be as we level out um yeah sure. and so i think last year it was really like a net margin of around 15 to 20 percent which isn't terrible as i means it's not not bad at all but a lot of that went reinvested into buying the new company and so you kind of like i didn't take home nearly as much as i could have if i had just said well i'm just going to own this one thing and hold it right and that's one of yeah. the big trade-offs and then one of the big things that i think a lot of small business owners like are afraid of when they think about expanding is how much mm-hmm. it costs to reinvest into, say, buying another company, right, or even that's starting true. another service line or whatever you do to, to build up. So you have to be willing to take that short term hit to hopefully build something bigger in the long term.
0: Well, that, that's a great point, Carl. And it's it's one of the things when 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 business buyers uh, who are you know younger are out there talk, looking at businesses for sale and, and talking to sellers. And it's like, you know, the seller hasn't really done anything to grow their business in 10 or 15 years. Yeah. <laughs> and it's easy to kind of look down your nose at that when you're young and hungry and, and not risk averse and aren't putting <laughs> right, kids right. through college. But yeah, the, once once businesses get to, you know there are kind of stair steps and tiers in business. And once you get to a certain tier in whatever, a plumbing business or a crew business, taking it to the next tier is not incremental. It requires a big investment yes. and a lot of
1: risk. And a mindset and, shift and like yeah. being hiring people that cost six figures and more. You know, there's all these things. So I'm, I joined entrepreneurs organization last year as well when I, mm. as the company was growing and EO, it's a it's a great group of people that have started small businesses. You have to be over a million in revenue. So the mm-hmm. nice thing there is you kind of get out the the, the people who are just like entrepreneurs are just kind of just getting started and you get to people who have yeah. real companies. And a lot of the guys yeah. in there are 20, 30 years older than me with 20, 30 year old businesses, you know, and. It's learning from like hearing from them, you know, when they're taking home half a million, a million dollars a year in cash flow, and that's what they want to just like that's kind of their lifestyle they now support. They don't you know, they're not thinking about reinvesting in the same way somebody in their 30s is. And it makes sense, right? That's like logical. I I don't fault them for that, right? Yeah. Uh, But yeah, when you are young, it's it's really important to use the like leverage the energy and the timeline that you have. Like, I got a long time to fix these companies. If I buy something and it screws it up, I screw it up. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Whereas, you know, if you're 60, you you don't have that that luxury.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, Well. On this point about growth, Carl, let's 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 uh, shine the spotlight back on you on growth. Yeah, you, you're growing this thing like crazy—fifty grand the first year, which is you know obviously not even a full-time salary. Right, a million, <laughs> and then two and a half million. Yeah. Um, you already said that you get bored. You know yourself. You get bored. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. when you're growing like that, Carl, I mean, is that already boring to you? I mean, you know, no, you didn't no, want to <laughs> give give yeah. it a few more years to get it to five and ten million right, on that right. that trajectory
1: you know that's a good question will um so it's less that it is it's boring in the day-to-day and more that like the business doesn't i am intentionally design the business so it doesn't need me as a full-time player and so every time like what i do i have a system that i've always done since i was even a cto at startups where i track my time and i bucket it into different categories and i see like when a, a, a any of those categories starts to get large and it's not really essential for me to be doing it, how do I find someone to do that thing? Because that's now holding me back or holding the business back from growing. So in other words, in the early days, it was I tracked my time on marketing, on sales, on actual product delivery and overseeing. And eventually I get to this point where I'm like, I'm spending four hours a week on like, or four hours a day on writing and editing. And I I don't, I don't wanna do that. That's not the best use of my time, right? So I hire writers and I hire an editor. Now I'm spending maybe you know 30 minutes checking over their work a day, but then I've got all this time freed up for sales and growth. So I took that systematic approach every month or so i kind of reevaluated my time spent and that's how i reinvested into hiring and figured out how to get myself out of things um and honestly here's the 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 thing about growth a big part of it is getting out of your own way now i'll say that like part of the reason for draft.dev's rapid growth was just the market demand i mean you can't deny that like nothing grows that fast in a service business without very like uh, offset or is a sort of like mismatched market demand and supply. Right. So there's just no way around that. That was a big part of the driver. And that's actually slowed down a lot this year. So we're going to have a, a low or lower year because tech is just a little bit wonky at the moment and VC funding is way down. So, you know, you've got to like you have to accept that the external like things in the market can really screw with your business like it or not. Uh, but at the same time, you, you do as an operator have to be able to step away and like delegate really effectively and just keep an eye on the the numbers um, as they come in and, and readjust as you go. So that's where it got to. And so it wasn't that I was bored with the company or couldn't have spent more time or couldn't spend more time on it now. It's just that I didn't want to design a job for myself. I wanted to design a, a business that runs ideally without much input from a leader. Now, eventually, I think we will hire like a GM or a, a chief operating officer to kind of run all the day to day. And I'll get to a point where I can just look at a monthly Sort of spreadsheet of metrics and just keep up with that person, maybe on a weekly and monthly basis. But um, yeah, in the short term, I mean, you know, you don't need a full time forty hour week visionary in a small business like that. It's just not. Mm. There's not forty hours of work because I could dream up a million ideas, but I don't have the people and the the size to mm-hmm. justify pursuing mm-hmm. thirty million different things. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Really interesting, Carl. Well, you 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 talk about your kind of the, the supply demand imbalance being yes what we, what we, what private equity types call tailwinds, right? Yeah, uh, right. And so incredible, these incredible tailwinds, but you deserve credit for perceiving them and sure. jumping on sure. the opportunity. So yeah, sure. yeah. Th- I mean, it's not to take away from the fact that you built something fast. It's y- you got out there in, in front of a tailwind and let it, and let it scoot you along. Yeah. Uh, good, good for you on that. Um, the, but also I do have to, so, but did you have an audience or anything? To, to, that you were able to market this to, or a network to, to get yeah. that initial revenue, or was it pure? I mean, st- yeah, well, still with strong tailwinds, et cetera, et, cetera, yeah, et cetera, Like you still have to, to get to, see, to get a million dollars in your first right. full year. Like
1: right. that's and, and really a know, lot of now, a lot of business, I, right? And not even if you even take out the revenue numbers, just look at the the kind of brands we work with now. We've worked with like huge publicly traded companies in just two, three years. You know, three years of of operating to get to that level where we get enough trust and credibility to work with them is like. It's really tough. Like, honestly, that I was most nervous about that when I was thinking about how do we go up market and kind of get our prices up and get like our, our margins better and stuff. Anyway, um, yeah. I, so my I, I did not have like a, a, a ton of like connections in this space, but I did have a couple things going for me. One was I was a developer who could write. And so I went out to all the companies that I knew had programs where they would let guest writers come in and write on their engineering blog. And I started reaching out to them and just listening to what they do. So, for example, I got on the phone with a company and they were, this guy was super transparent. He walks me through like the whole model and the margins and the way it works for them. he's like, you know, we pay a writer 700 bucks to write a blog post. We pay an editor two, $300 to, to edit it at most, maybe less. And then we get it published and a typical blog post brings us Ten thousand dollars worth of business over its lifetime, and I'm like, well, that's an incredible ROI, right? But like, mm. so once a company figures that out, they scale this stuff as much as they can afford. But what they had also told me was there's a lot more room for margin there that yeah. you know some companies will be willing to pay. And so, yeah. as I kind of launched, I figured out like, all right, there's there's room here, and now we charge close to two thousand dollars a blog post, and that's just because again, there's there's a lot of room in that that market to to play with. Um, yeah. Now that may not last forever, right? Like that's one yeah. of the, the yeah. challenging things because, and I, I like this market. Hey, this is something in general I've come to like in, in service markets is like, I like the market. There's no dominant player. There's a lot of small players. Cause that means yep. there's room for you to carve a little toehold and you don't have to go in and be the winner take all. Like, you know, it's not the Uber versus Lyft thing where you've got a, a these huge behemoths that are going to own the whole market. Now you can come in as like, just one of a lot of under $5 million companies. And that's, a, like, that's exactly why the podcast consultant, the, the business which I just bought, appealed to me too.
0: Well, Carl, now that, you, <laughs> now that you've wet your appetite with buying businesses, you are going to love fragmented markets for a completely different reason, um, which everyone knows where I'm going with that. Uh, <laughs> that that's, that's really cool. You already know that business owners are making amazing use of virtual assistants, often based in the Philippines. And while virtual assistants are helpful, virtual professionals are transformative. More Staffing is a boutique agency that hires A players in the Philippines, not for simple tasks, but for deep competency work. Think operators, supply chain managers, controllers. More Staffing de-risks your engagement with a 12-month guarantee to you, and they provide coaching for six months to their talent when an engagement begins. That means your hire is coached in the background, no additional cost to you, so that your working relationship flourishes and is as successful as it can be. Global staffing is increasingly the norm, and building the muscle within your business to take advantage of it will be crucial in the years ahead. Speak with more staffing about the pool of capable, affordable managers they can connect you with. Check out morenow.co. That's morenow.co. Okay, and before we get to your story of buying a podcast consultant, let's um, let's go ahead and define productized service, which I which I teased at the beginning, because I think it's it's so relevant. It's relevant to the business you bought and the current business. So 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 you touched on it when you were like when you were like the way you designed this business was such that you're basically not you're not selling hours, you're selling flat fee like yep. an article for x, two articles for y, 10 articles for z. I I assume, I assume. Yep, that's so right. it's kind of like you're picking, you know, the 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 client is like picking things off a menu, very well defined, no yep. scope creep. No you you know how long things. so you can really like you said, make it very systematized. Um is that right so far? Yeah. Yeah, that,
1: that's exactly right. It's like Basically, the quick and easy way to say this is like it is it is what it sounds like. It's taking a service offering and packaging it up like it's a product that people could theoretically go to your website and click buy now. It's in their cart and they submit their spec and they get their results back at some time. Now, I'll say that there's degrees of productizing a service. So in other words, there's some that are literally like you can go into the site. You never talk to a human. It's like buying a SaaS product and you've just bought access to this service, right? And then there's ours, ours which is a lot more done with you and hands-on, and there's a lot of back and forth. Um, part of this, is the nature of our content, part of is the nature of the clients we work with, they're big companies that want to have real conversations with people on the phone. Um, and whereas, you know, some, again, some productized services are very hands-off. But I think the the big lesson is, like, it's just a fancy word. At the end of the day, almost every service business would benefit from some degree of productization, like standardization. It's why nobody buys, like, general purpose consulting firms. Like, if I had made this Carl's developer marketing consulting firm and it was all just branded to me and it was all about my smart brain, get you getting to hire me for hours, there's no way this would have been something I could step away from this quickly, right? Just doesn't. It's, that's not a it, it wouldn't happen. And it's the reason those companies don't get bought. Or if they do, it's like for, for pennies on the dollar compared to a company that has actually sort of built a repeatable product uh, service offering.
0: You know, but what I let me push on that a little bit, because fundamentally, a product I service is it just marketing? Is it just positioning? Yeah, I think is it so. just positioning, yeah. or is it, yeah. or is there something under the under the hood that actually is different than you know Carl's SEO agency?
1: I, I mean, it is just a it's a word. It's just a marketing, a way to describe, um, you know, a, ty- a like a a service business that is not quite so bespoke. Part of it is like giving instead of branding the company around like we are like we will go in and give you the best bespoke solution for everything you do. We kind of brand it as like. This is a repeatable turn on the knob, turn off the knob kind of turnkey thing that you can implement. So it appeals to that kind of buyer, the person who wants that. Other people, it doesn't appeal to. I mean, we get people all the time asking us to send them custom proposals for whole you know marketing packages, and we just don't do that. So we just tell them there's yeah. somebody else that you should do that with. Um, and that's that's totally fine. You have to be willing to say no to business like that's. That's also one of the big things that, again, service businesses and consulting marketing agencies really struggle with is saying no to the wrong business. You know, when mm-hmm. I started draft dev, um, people were always like, well, why don't you write content for other kinds of companies too? You know, you guys have obviously figured something out and I'm like, yeah, but our whole brand, our whole like defining features, very specific. We're just mm-hmm. going to be very specific and it makes us, we immediately win more trust and more business because we only do the one specific thing. Um, whereas I think it's a lot harder to stand out when you do everything for everybody.
0: Sure. Sure. Well, Carl, I, uh, at the risk of flattering you, i do I really feel like you you had a lot of um, kind of you made some wise decisions and and when when you went into draft.dev that you you know you uh, didn't make a lot of the beginner mistakes. Um, but I and, think that was, you know, mm-hmm. like
1: to be honest, and this is what people ask me about the slot, like your first business you actually started actually took off really quickly. How did that happen? I'm like, well, I was the first employee twice. I really I mean, as much as this was my first one, I technically owned one hundred percent of going into day one. I had been right there as companies went from zero to 30 people and like raised five million dollars in funding, like lots of stuff I got to see. So that, I think that's one cheat code you can kind of like take away from this is like, if you're interested in entrepreneurship, but you're not quite sure you want to buy something or start something like go be the first 10 employees, like one of the first 10 employees. It's a super Mm -hmm. interesting experience. You get a ton of insight into how things really work and the like the goods and bads, the ups and downs, the like the grind and the like the awesome times. It's it's a really uh, a good experience.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I said we were last question on Draft. but I have one more. If if and when you do get, and you, I guess you you will get to a point where you hire in a, a, an operator of some mm-hmm. kind. Uh, will you expect that person to also grow the business? I mean, can you step out of this business that's doing two two and a half million dollars a year of revenue? Step out of it put somebody else in charge and expect it to continue growing also?
1: That's a good good question. I,
0: I, I do think
1: yes, but it may not be. I mean, I don't think even if I were running the business full time, I would grow it as quickly like as it did these last couple of years forever. Right. That's just unrealistic. It's it's not that big of a market to be perfectly honest. Um, so what, here's what I, the way I look at growth though, let's pick any industry or service for an industry and say and and i ask myself in 10 years will be will there be more demand for this than there is today and if so do we think that's going to outpace the general like you know market return like if i put it in the s p 500 right and i I think when you ask me the question about developer content is there going to be more content that helps software developers build more software in 10 years than today Absolutely. Like, I don't know what format that content will take. Maybe it'll be more video and maybe it'll be a mixed mixed medium. Maybe AI will partially write some of it. But either way, there's going to be more content because humans are going to be writing software and more software in ten years than they are today. So Mm -hmm. I, I just think like, it's an inevitability that it will grow as long as we stay in the market and and have a like a, a presence there. The same mm-hmm. with the podcasting company. It's like, I think there'll be more B2B podcasts in 10 years than there are today. They might be video. They might be short form on TikTok, but there's going to be more of them. And so I just want to be in that market and experience that growth.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, beautiful, beautiful segue. OK. So you you decide that you kind of have the itch to do something else um, after draft.dev is you've grown it nicely, and but it can also now kind of operate without you or without your full-time attention. So what next? So you you went to the, sorry, you went to the ETA, yeah. ETA conferences, yeah, yeah. you read the books, then yep. what next? <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> so I got, yeah, I got really interested in this whole like search fund model. And I, you know, I realized that there's a name for what I'm doing. It's a self-funded search. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's I got to know. I got into the you know search funder community, which I'm sure lots of people here know. And you yep. know, get get in there and start asking questions and answering questions, and, and just kind of seeing what people are doing. Um, you know, what happened? The the story was I, I started to to come up with this vision of like buying a portfolio of niche companies like this, and then I talked to a friend about it, and he had been. He and I have gone way back, but we were we've never really done a. a big project together, like start a business together. But we've been talking about that for the last year. And I I just kind of pitched him on this idea really casually. And he's like, dude, that sounds awesome. I want to do it. Let's let's make it happen. So uh, this guy's in Austria. He uh, sold a business a startup uh, a few years back, so he had some money. He'd been doing angel investments with and was kind of ready to do something like to get into something new. So we went in and started the search process. I guess that's a good break point. Do you like? I can hop into the, all the details of how we ran the search and why we did it that way. But I'm happy to answer other questions if you got anything else first.
0: <laughs> no, no, that, that's great. Let's let's um let's hear about this. And but before you jump in, I'll, I'll plug your article. You wrote a great uh, kind of postmortem of this whole process. Laid yeah. it out really nicely. For a lot of my audience, a lot of it's gonna already feel familiar if they've read By and Build. Certainly totally, yeah. it's really the anatomy of a search, but it was still it's you know nicely condensed in a single article and, and um so so anyway. Um yeah. let us kind of bang through the chronology and I and I'll and I'll stop you um, yeah. at, at points. So yeah, yeah, yeah ne- it, what happened next?
1: So, and I wrote that because I got so many people asking to book a meeting with me after I did this, they knew I bought this company. I was like, I'm sick of taking these 30 minute meetings where I tell them the same thing every yeah. time <laughs> I was like, here, read this article and then tell me if you have specific questions, then we can do a meeting, you know, like, yeah. let's, let's get beyond the, the basics. Um, yeah. yeah. So, but I'm happy to walk through that. Um, the initially we were trying to, we, we sort of started like looking at all, service businesses that were productized or could be productized. Right. And so we just had this like we went to brokers we went to all the little um, marketplaces for small businesses. We knew we want something under a couple million in total um, price because we were going to be putting our own down payment on it. So like we didn't want to bring in investors for this one just because I like the idea of holding control and holding equity. Again, I'm I'm thinking of this long term, not like I want to get a return in five years. This is about like building up a legacy forever. So um, I, I, so, Car- I Carl, guess, hey, yeah, yeah. Let,
0: let me let me jump in. It. I'm gonna I'm gonna yeah, yeah. In- be interrupting you all the while. Um, so, two million. Let's call it two million dollars is your ceiling. Yeah. So, as I know, because I because I know your story, you do an SBA yeah. loan. So, you're, so you guys are basically kind of bringing, call it two to four hundred thousand dollars of your own money yeah. to the table, sort of. That thing? Was, okay.
1: Yeah, that's what we were assuming. Um, and then uh, we would do the SBA loan and a seller's note to kind of make up for any difference or to have some like you know uh, sort of. Uh, tie into the seller for longer to make sure they're kind of incentivized for the business to keep keep going
0: yeah. right one more question um yeah give us examples. so we've talked about product ser- product services yeah. in the abstract give yeah, us yeah. examples of other
1: yeah that's t- a good you- other other good, examples good question uh, yeah. 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 yeah yeah so we looked at things like other article writing services that did like uh maybe more general purpose business or consumer content we looked at um uh, unlimited design services are really popular right now that's where you pay like a <clears throat> fixed monthly fee like 500 a month and you can submit as many requests for a, a little custom design or um avatar whatever you want online and a lot of businesses use this to help like augment their blog posts right so it's like every week i can go submit a new request to get a new blog post cover image or social media images or whatever uh those are really popular and they're easy to, like they're easy to start the I, I, yeah, I have thoughts about the downsides to them, but like, anyway, we looked at some of those. I, I do too. Um, I use yeah. one of those for
0: acquiring <laughs> wines, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I, yeah, we, that's an aside, but, um, but there, there, there are some interesting things like that. And then we looked at just random things that would come up. Like, um, one guy did uh, what was, it? it was like, um, uh, product hunt launches for people where, mm. you know, he takes your product mm-hmm. and helps you get it launched on product hunt um Mm -hmm. again that's got some problems with that kind of business model because a lot of what he was doing was kind of gaming the system is like very short term not going to work forever but you know interesting business anyway he made good money doing it great margins super you know super uh easy to run um so anyway looked at all those and then we were like okay this is too much like there's honestly just so many options there that it was hard to compare there was like every business was apples and oranges because like an unlimited design business with a uh, subscription fee is way different than these one-off product hunt businesses where you just get single, you know, customers at a time. So where I was like, let's just make a rubric and start to figure out like what industry we want to, to focus in on. So we both really like audio and video both as a medium, because we already are both familiar with written content, especially working with draft.dev. And I was like so many of our clients ask for audio or visual versions of this content. Like maybe mm. there's a chance to like cross sell there, or we can figure out ways to like, make these businesses interact down the line. But in the short term, we just both looked at podcasting and said there will be more businesses doing B2B podcasting in 10 years than there are today. I'm I'm very confident in that. Now, will it be, you know, a hundred times more? Probably not. But will it be two to three times more? Probably I could see that Um, Mm -hmm. because it is a really good way to build up trust with your audience and the I mean, this is very meta, right? (laughs) Well, like like we're doing it right here on the show. Um, But it's a good way to like get in front of that audience. It doesn't cost nearly as much time for the 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 host or the guest as writing an article would. Um, And it's a it's a more personal message, to be honest. Again, as A.I. starts to write more content, people wonder, you know, is this just a robot writing this piece or is this actually what the CEO thinks? Um, Whereas, I mean, you could probably fake my voice through A.I. too, but like I think there's a lot it's a lot harder and it's a lot more personal when you, you can kind of hear the person talking. So um, yeah. anyway, we like the industry and we we're like, let's just focus there. So we built up a list. We went through LinkedIn and found like 100 or 120. I don't remember like uh, maybe more even um, podcast production and editing agencies that were in the U.S. that had the potential to be as big as we wanted, like big enough and, and not too big um, and just started like reaching out to them cold. So um, we used LinkedIn sales Nav almost exclusively. I sent a few emails and those never went through. And LinkedIn sales Nav worked out like a fairly high bit of the time. I think we were probably getting like five to 10% response rates. Now, not all mm-hmm. those were positive. A lot of more man, not right now, but um, it was definitely getting through to people's inboxes. And my, mm-hmm. my assumption there is this this particular target demographic of they're relatively young business owners, uh, you know, maybe in their 40s, not in their 70s. So they're on LinkedIn. They're a yep. digital business so they they get clients through linkedin as well so they have to have a presence there so they're in there checking it Um, and so I I think it makes sense for that audience. I don't think this is something you'd replicate if you're going to buy a plumbing business, you know, as we we've pointed out here, it's just, it's a different, it's apples and oranges type businesses, but, um, well,
0: well, well, it's, it's, it's a good, um, point for the audience to, this is one of the benefits of productized services because they're generally digitally or digitally delivered businesses. And so the owners of these businesses and, and potential sellers of these businesses are going to be much easier easier to reach via, totally. via online channels versus the seventy five year old owner of a plumbing company for sure. Yeah. Um, and that you know finding deal flow is, is is important and it and it's enough for somebody to like want to take a look at an industry. I mean, just the, totally. the access to deals and so this represents you know productized services represent you know kind of uh, better easier to drum up deal flow than yeah. plumbing businesses Than some um, yeah. And you're not
1: geographically constrained. I mean, other than being in the U.S. because we wanted the SBA loan, there was no real, like they could be in Oklahoma, they could be in California. And we don't have to, we haven't, we've never shook the hands of the guy like in person that we bought the business from yet. Uh, I may go out there this August though. So I'm going to try to actually meet in person, but like, it's funny to like have transferred this, the biggest purchase I've ever made in my life and I've never met the guy in person. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I should have asked this earlier, Carl, but what about e-commerce or SaaS? Mm, why did yeah. why did you not consider all those other digital types of businesses? Actually, I make the yeah. error of often talking about like the basket of potential digital businesses: is e yeah, yeah. SaaS, like affiliate content, yep. and lead gen, um, yep. kind of a distant fourth. And yep. but really, productized services—they're not explicitly digital, but everything can be done online, yep. so they're kind of quasi. Um, but they should really be in that in that bucket. But anyway, why did you not? consider these other yeah. four possibilities, especially yeah. that you're actually a technical person. You're not yeah, even I just couple online.
1: Right. Yeah. We were actually, we talked about this and, and, and you know, first of all, e-commerce, we, neither one of us had any experience with. I like, mm. I mean, it's cool, but like to go into, you know, I think a lot of searchers face this challenge when they are looking or buy a business. When you don't have any industry experience, it can be really hard to actually see like what is going on in those businesses. So I felt like there was just too many landmines that we would hit if we bought, bought something that was a little too far afield. Um, mm-hmm. So Ecom was out. Uh, we did talk about SAS because my, my partner had built and sold a SAS like he knew what that was. And I had been with SaaS companies so like I knew what that would look like. Yeah. Uh, the downside to SAS is because the multiples are so high relative to a service business, we would have to buy something where we would be very in the weeds. Like I would probably have to be writing code or at least overseeing engineers who wrote code. Uh, unless we did it, um, a big fundraise and, you know, bought a $10 million company, in which case they might have a whole team. But, um, yeah, the, I don't know what SAS multiples are now, but at the time they were, I mean, we were seeing stuff that was eight to 10 uh, times EBITDA or SDE, which is just like, I mean, it just puts a lot of things out of reach. Um, totally. Totally. so, uh, yeah, so that was, <clears throat> that was, uh, our thought on SAS, um, and, and then, honestly, what about like,
0: content businesses? Since yeah, you're so, I mean, that's really your your content house, right?
1: It definitely would have been that's not a, wouldn't have been a bad idea. I mean, we we talked about buying like a developer content type site and trying to maybe just amp it up. Um, I think content is is interesting. It's going to get harder and harder to monetize. Um, content as more and more gets created. This is kind of one of the downsides to content getting easier to create is that monetization is super hard. I think a lot of the best content monetization is just pushing a specific SaaS or, or product that you sell. Uh, and so you end up building a content business that really has to support an e-commerce business as well, or a SaaS business as well in order to get the most margin. Um, now I'm not saying you can't, obviously there's of people with good content businesses. It's just a, it's a different model.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and maybe is another way of saying what you just said so I make sure I understand yeah. that essentially content marketing is, that what would you describe as content marketing like so the kind of you know that the 10-year-old the t- version of content marketing when it was sure. first coming into inception from HubSpot and the rest where mm-hmm. where the the best marketing is going to be content and so companies that could afford it would have developed entire content op- like HubSpot entire yeah. co- entire content operations not to monetize the content directly, but indirectly right. as a form of, of, you know, pushing people ultimately to their brand. It's a very kind of right. top of funnel way of, uh, totally. of bringing, bringing people in. Yeah, is that so still as relevant and, and yeah. does it work as well? You have to say yes because that's what Draft.dev is. <laughs> <laughs> is it, I mean, I obviously,
1: I, I think that because of podcasting is a form of content marketing as well. Exactly. Um, so yeah. I, I believe very strongly that content and that personal relationship you get with an audience through content is the way that B2B, like sales will go. I mean, uh, not to say no industry will ever benefit from cold outreach. That's absolutely good cases for it. And I think that's an interesting model too. But, uh, the truth is you need content to support cold outreach as well. So like it never becomes less important. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I think too, part of it will, as we were talking through it, we were like, okay, if we buy a bunch of businesses that are like all just totally different, then we have to figure out different operational models for each of them. And I'm not saying that that's impossible or just something I'd never want to do, but like, why not for the first one, make it as easy on ourselves as possible Buy something yeah. with a pretty similar operational model so that we understand how to look at it versus the other company. And so that maybe we can start to share some of the back office resources, because as we've we've you know sort of modeled this out, we're like, well, we know what, you know, gross margins and net margins are for these businesses. And that net margin part, you lose a lot on like, part-time accounting, part-time HR, part-time marketing, Mm -hmm. part-time. There's a bunch of part-time roles that all these small businesses need that don't need to be like in that small business necessarily. So I think what we'll end up doing is sort of building those into their own back office organizational unit that kind of serves all the companies and helps improve those margins across the board. That's the theory, at least, you know, we we'll sure. talk to me in five years. Tell me if we got, I'll tell you if we got there.
0: <laughs> well, well, that, that that debate between a centralized services model and a decentralized yeah. services model is a debate that is ongoing. Is, yeah. And, and Holtcos are kind of battling yeah. internally with themselves as to what makes sense all the time. Right. <laughs> okay. So we're getting the sense here that like y- this is this first acquisition you're wanting to like learn how to buy a business, what it's like, yeah. what it feels like, presumably with the idea that this be- maybe becomes the model and you do this again with bigger and bigger. So, so kind of, um, building a holdco uh, uh yeah. of, of sorts is it, was that an explicit mission?
1: Yeah. but I mean, once we started looking at buying a business, we were like, I, I mean, it, it, it became the explicit mission pretty quickly. Like we both are mm. We're again, we're both young enough and concerned with like long term. We want to build something meaningful. So to mm-hmm. buy a small business that's, you know, like under two million in revenue and then just say, well, we just want to hold that and run it forever. is just not exciting enough. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. to be honest, yes. like, yeah. I, I I think there's still plenty of time for me to like, figure things out and go a little bigger. So it was definitely the explicit thing. And the other thing is, is that, you know, there is more talk about these like mini hold, com- holding companies or mini private equity funds where you raise some money and you buy a bunch of companies and you kind of, um, either roll them together and sell them or just roll them together and keep the cash flow. Um, yep. so it's kind of becoming more popular. I don't want to like, I'm not a like a trend chaser per se, but I like seeing other people do it makes me think, oh, well, that's something you can do. It's like, it just helps to know there's guys like an Andrew Wilkinson who's buying a bunch of small companies and like doing this kind of thing and be like, okay, I can listen to him for some advice and some like forethought, but I can do things my own way as well.
0: Yep. Well, I think you just articulated why acquiring minds this podcast exists. So (laughs) that's right. So we're on the same page there. I always loved
1: (laughs) listening to this show and just the variety of uh, businesses and guests and the types of things they buy. It's just so interesting to hear just because, you know, that I think a lot of people step into entrepreneurship and they want a template. I think this this to me was one of the hardest things about the first six months of the business was there's no answers. There's mm. no right way to do this. I can look at my competitors. I can try to deep, you know, deconstruct what they do, but like, none of that matters. You have to go make your own path. And that's super like fun, but also really challenging.
0: One thing I've noticed Carl in my own, uh, with acquiring minds itself is that I, my own interest and kind of where I was at home was digital businesses. And so I covered more acquiring digital business stories in the early mm-hmm. days. And I've just, over time, it's become less and less for whatever reason, More probably just because my own eyes were opened to the whole world of offline, right. sweaty, traditional businesses. And so they're so rich and varied and interesting. Um, but any all of that is just to ask you, when you, you're kind of like me, you and I have kind of similar backgrounds, at least kind of ecosystems mm-hmm. that we come from. Um, when you went to... The ETA conference at uh, Booth and Kellogg, you were probably similarly exposed to people who were buying more traditional businesses, not digital. Did you feel like a a fish out of water? Oh, yeah. And how do you think about that <laughs> for a lot it's of funny,
1: reasons? Like, like for a lot of reasons, because will like I'm a, I'm a pretty like dressed down casual guy. And these are, you know, a little more formal MBA types and finance types. You know, you get yeah. a lot of suits in there and I'm yeah. like a T-shirt and jeans every day person. That's just that's I'm never going to I'm not going to be, you know, something different for, for them. Um, but, and, and, you know, it was fine. Everybody was great. i met a lot of great people and I, I'm not saying this in a negative way. Like I couldn't go to that, like I was looked down on or anything at all. Cause like the truth is honestly a lot of them were super interested in the fact that I was doing something different from the typical mm-hmm. model and mm-hmm. the fact that I actually already ran a business and was looking to buy, you know, something else too, and like started to like put that out there. And people are like, that's really, you know, just, A lot of the people in the eta world have never actually run a business right that's Mm -hmm. the typical background is more either finance or like maybe they've done operations but they've never actually been a ceo so you know that that's that's one thing that's kind of fun about being in that like being a little different in the crowd is you get a lot of conversations going because people want to hear the different story you know we almost hear the same like same story over and over again um yeah yeah it was it was definitely eye-opening though because um there's a lot of things that are fundamentally different about digital businesses i think one is like they can and this maybe this isn't always true but they can be very small um and still be a little more hands off if you do them right um because i think there's less of that need for like a ceo who's in the office every day like you know showing a face um the in-person businesses too like i mean location like having a physical location i would need to go to every day is kind of a non-starter it just wasn't interesting to me i mean it was not a Thing. I haven't had to like go to an office in a long time and I didn't want to start just, you know, I've got two young kids too. So I was like really appealed to, to staying remote. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things practically that I wasn't interested in there. Plus I think that the, Personally, I, I want to do things that, where I get the best leverage on my time and skills that's possible. So yeah. buying digital businesses that I kind of know how to run fundamentally, I know the things that they're going to run into as far as cash flow, invoicing, um, receivables. I know how the finances work. I know roughly what the gross and net margins should kind of look like because I've got a ton of like insight into that. Plus, I kind of know how to do the sales on these sorts of companies. I mean, I led sales at Draft.Dev for the first year and like, figured out a model that kind of works and same with this company. I came in and just kind of picked it up really quickly because it's the same thing. It's just selling a different service to a slightly different audience, but they're not that different um, fundamentally. So so many things there that just transferred that I was like, I don't want to give that up and start all the way back to like, you know, I buy a, let's say um, a auto repair shop or something. And now I have no idea how to grow an auto repair shop. I mean, maybe I just try to like survive, but (laughs) that would be the best case would be survival. Whereas I feel like coming into a digital business that has been run well, but could be run a little better, I think we'll come in and grow the first year. I mean, it's, it's looking that way so far, but like, you know, time will tell, right. There's probably going to be some, I'm sure there'll be rockiness because that's just what small business ownership is. But yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like you get a lot quicker, like Uptime, like time to actual effectiveness. I can't the that book first ninety days has some uh, word they use for this, and you know, I've just read that as I was getting into this the buying a new company too. And they use a phrase that describes like how quickly can you get to effectiveness or doing something effective that shows Mm -hmm. your team I'm actually useful. So Mm -hmm. like for me, it's coming in as a new CEO. How quickly could I get the new payroll system implemented and rolled out so that everybody's getting paid? Because that Mm -hmm. looks really good. Like Carl Mm -hmm. could actually do something here. Um, And that's the kind of thing like that really, if you can make that metric faster by use like buying a business, you already have skills in that area or knowledge in that area. I think it goes a long way to just building credibility and the team seeing like, oh, this is why Carl's in here buying this business. And it's not like Carl's just like that moron who doesn't know a thing about podcasting.
0: Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, when as you as you articulate all of this, Carl, it's very compelling and convincing. now, a lot of my audience is is considering buying businesses and industries they don't know at all, and that and that's sure. not I ch- I I I don't think, and I would hope that that's not a challenge that they're underestimating. They recognize, and in right. fact, a the theme of the podcast often is like, what do you say? How do you build credibility quickly? Yep. And 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 you do need to be confident yourself that you are actually going to be delivering value, and and oftentimes the answer is simply that you know, the seller might have been kind of a technician themselves and grown crews around them and they find themselves in the, in the seat after growing totally. their business for a number of years. And they're just, they don't have the business savvy or the appetite or whatever, the systematic thinking. And so a person who comes from a background where they really think about business in kind of an abstract way can deliver value at that kind of, at that layer, at that level. Um, but of course, you need to communicate that to 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 your employees who are going to see you as like a you know, uh, what's the what's the word from whatever an outsider, <laughs> yeah, an interloper, an outsider, uh, sure. uh, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's 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 very, it's really interesting. But 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 to your point, certainly if you have a resume that like speaks to the actual service being provided uh, by the business that you're acquiring, that may, that just like neutralizes this whole point of friction. So that's. That's easier if you could do that. So that's great. Definitely. So Okay. So you guys have this thesis, this kind of industry thesis you develop around Mm -hmm. B2B podcasting. You're reaching out on LinkedIn. It's actually really quite successful. These people are easy Mm -hmm. to find. They're pretty responsive. Um, plop us back into your search.
1: Yeah. Yeah. A lot of them were just what you described, Will. They were operators who had started the businesses almost as freelance audio engineers and then Mm -hmm. kind of accidentally grew to a point where they sort of hit the limits of what they could handle, Um, you know, where growth meant more hours in the business and they didn't want that. So they you kind of like hit some point wherever that is for them. And they're like, I don't want to grow because it's just going to hurt more. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. we were looking for those kind of people that 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 uh, profile of somebody who likes the operator, like I like to be in there editing the audio, but shouldn't be anymore. Um, and so we started having calls. I probably had, I don't know, between 20 and 50 calls last summer when I was doing this, you know, it was just a ton of um, interest and some were way off base. I tried all sorts of things. Like, I think one thing I learned was being very direct in my messaging instead of trying to beat around the bush and be like, uh, I just want to have a chat and hear about your business, you know, nothing. I don't do anything like that like anymore. Um, What worked was just being very direct and upfront and saying, I own a small business right now. I want to buy another company, like a podcast production agency. Looks like you guys have built a good thing. You want to talk. And that is like that simple sort of messaging that really appealed, I think, to other business owners because they were like, oh, this Carl guy is not that different from me. He's a small business owner, too. And like he's, you know, so I use again, using the credibility to, to get whatever you can leveraged out of that. Uh, So we start to have conversations, we get down to probably three to five who are interesting and interested in us. And then we sort of just tried to figure out how do we start to, to whittle that down even further. And eventually after, you know, a month or so of conversations with with all them, we got down to one who signed an actual LOI uh, and that's the company we bought. So we, we signed the LOI um, probably three to five months into our searching process. It was pretty quick, like to be honest. And I assumed that something would happen to kill the deal though i mean it's like because i just hear the numbers and i'm like this is just not gonna we're not gonna get our first ally let's just like don't get married to it just you know let's just try so we start to do diligence um pretty simple on a deal this small so you know that it's under a million in total value so it, like right under a million so like that it's not that complicated to look at the books of a company like this that was another thing too i'm not a finance background person so like I, and not that I'm lost in books. I know how to look at my books at draft.deb very well. And I know what things mean and I know how to like, you know, all that. So when I looked at this company, it wasn't that different. And I was like, great. So I kind of know what this looks like. Like, it wasn't like mm-hmm. I was out of water there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we weren't dealing like the nice thing, too, about digital businesses when you're not a super savvy finance person is they don't deal with a lot of the complicated stuff like um, Having equipment that you have to, you know, capex. Like, yeah, capex every right. So all the different stuff that like goes into the complicated accounting of like valuating that stuff and then drawing it down over time and all, amortizing, amortizing like expenses and and uh, and in income. This this guy's a cash basis business. Cash in or he, you know his people invoice him for the work they do every month and he invoices clients every month It's very simple to look at those books and be like, here's money in money out. Um, no other costs other than people basically it's just a little bit of software. So super lean. Um, so anyway, diligence was not complicated. We just verified that a lot, like all the things he sent us was correct by looking at contracts, looking at actual work done and, um, talking to customers, things like that. So, um, got a good feel there. And then unfortunately, when we made the mistake of kind of engaging the bank, after or as we were closing up our our diligence, we felt good and we were like, okay, let's talk to the bank now. And I should have started that earlier. Again, hindsight. Now I now I know this. Like the bank just takes a long time, and I think part of it we got kind of caught through the holidays too. So we st- we we started to engage the bank around November, I think, and then the holidays hit, and everybody was out on their side for half the month, and so nothing got done until January, really. Um, we finally started to make some movement in January. But then I think honestly, like the, the a couple things were happening. There was the, um, banking sort of wobbles that were happening. Interest rates kept going up. And then, um, what was the bank that closed? Silicon Valley Bank, right? Or that? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. the, yeah. SVB, so yep. Silicon. Yeah, SVB closing kind of happened towards the again. Like was that February or March? Maybe. Um, Sounds right. Either way. Yeah, that got like the bank a little nervous too. And I think their credit team put a little extra on us for that. Um, Yeah. So it it was, it was way long. It took six months with the bank after our like month or so of like quick diligence, you know? So they they asked for a lot of things that, um, I would say were somewhat unnecessary given the size and scope of the deal, but you know, they got to do, they're, they're all covering their downside. I get it. I understand. So,
0: and was your seller amenable to all of this uh stuff because it it can be kind of onerous on on, on the the, the demands of the bank can be onerous on the seller i i felt bad for
1: how long drug on because i mean he wanted to be closed up by the end of 2022 as well like of course that would have been great you know but just realistically that wasn't going to happen um he was great though he was super communicative and like stayed with us we kept meeting with him every week or two just to kind of keep the communication going be very transparent about where we were at i've always favored just transparency like you know we told them up front this is our first time buying a company and dealing with this kind of loan we're not going to do it right I'm sure you know like we're going to have to go back and we're going to screw things up um but that humility kind of like again I I think this is something that I I think benefits a searcher but I don't know if you know maybe this isn't everybody's style but just being real and being like humble to these other business owners like why not you know they're, they're they're small business owners they've screwed things up too they know it's hard and to just go in and say like, Oh yeah, I'm going to come in, buy your business. I know exactly what I'm doing. It's like, that's just, you don't just don't say that <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like that. Mm-hmm. Be be honest about what you do know and don't. Um, yeah. So he was great through the process, the, the bank eventually we got things going and done with them and wrapped up and um all was good there
0: let's just circle back a little bit to, to, to your search why some of the others that you got on the phone and looked at their businesses why did you decide why was this guy the winner the podcast yeah. consultant why was he the somewhere
1: winner? yeah somewhere too small like mm-hmm. under 500k in revenue and it's just mm-hmm. really hard to it's really yeah. hard to justify the work that goes into the sale for that i wanted i mean i would have would have been great to get something maybe around a million a million and a half, but you know 750k which we we this is what this one came in for, um, was not bad. I mean, that's really that was within a ballpark, I think, because this is again, based on my draft dev experience business like this doesn't usually have the margin to hire a salesperson until they get towards like a million, million and a half in revenue. Um, there's probably exceptions, but like just generally speaking, when you want to really like, a, a good salesperson you're going to need to pay six figures and the only way to do that is get to a certain size so uh that was kind of one of my thoughts was like how quickly could we get it to that point right don't have to be running sales calls because I love doing the sales calls it's a great learning experience but obviously it's a huge time investment and so Yeah. yeah we'll get there but um yeah so that was the uh a lot of it was size some of it was like sellers just kind of realizing we were very upfront about our numbers too we were like we're going to take your SDE. We'll figure out what it is with you, you know, kind of go through your books and, and we tell them what SDE means. Cause a lot of them didn't even know what that meant really, which, mm-hmm. you know, that's fair. And then, um, we'll give you a, about a three X multiple. There's just, that was it. We didn't say like, we might give you four, we might give you two. Like, we were just like, it's going to be around three and it, there's kind of no way we're going to pay more than that. Just the, the economics don't make sense and your size business doesn't. And we might pay a little less if you have reasons we need a discount. So, mm-hmm. um, and once people look at those numbers, that's really where the business owner is like, ooh, interesting. So, you know, say it's a million dollar business with 30% margins, they've been getting 300K a year for, a you know, this small business they run, which is pretty good money for anybody, but for a small business owner, you know, who does their own thing, it's great. Um, and then they're going to get, you know, 900K and then you take out taxes and you think about like, you're going to get, you know, 65 to 70% of that maybe, or whatever, you know, whatever it is per you, it ends up getting less appealing as people look at that and they're like, Oh, I'm not going to get a million bucks for this business, yeah. you know? And so I think there's something there where like mentally, once they do the math, they're kind of like, Oh yeah, maybe this isn't right to sell yet. Like I like the 300 K a year, um, which I totally is totally fair.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, this is great, Carl. And the, just going back to the high response rates you were getting, uh, I know I'm going back a few steps here, mm-hmm. but but the you know the other thing to call out about that is, which you, you kind of already have, you already have a business. And so many of my guests, after they buy their first deal, they find proprietary outreach, like subsequent proprietary outreach yeah. to go and buy an add-on. Um, so much easier and often deal flow comes to them. I mean, you have totally. so much credibility if you are already a business owner. You're talking business yep. owner to business owner. So so we have to acknowledge that those high response rates you were getting on LinkedIn, part of that was almost certainly they like looked at your LinkedIn profile and they're like, oh, this guy right. already has a business. And oh, by the way, the business is really complimentary. So it feels really right. natural that a guy doing written content would now want to be diversifying or adding on podcast content. So there was there was a whole narrative they were building around you before they decided totally. to even respond. Um, totally. so that, that helped. Um, but I think
1: that's, that's like a key thing of any good cold outreach is that, that it is, it has, has a narrative that makes sense to people. The same is true if you're going to do cold outreach for a business to grow it. Like if you're just the spray and pray stuff doesn't work anymore. I mean, it's just, it's too done and you get immediately like clipped by spam filters. You got to figure out a way to draw a line between what you're offering and what the person is doing and it making sense to them. Yeah. So I, I think. You know, whether you have the, I had the advantage of being a business owner, but there's, again, you could have industry experience. That would be a great advantage to be like, yeah, I worked at this really big competitor of yours and I want to buy a business like this because I love this kind of industry or whatever. You know, like that kind of thing is huge too. So whatever you've got, use that personal connection, even going to the same college with somebody or like you grew up in the same small town. Like there's got to be something there that you can build a connection with. Yeah. Um, and I would just say, I mean, that's, that's the way I would always lean into any kind of cold outreach to people. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, one tactic that, that you used to try to get these folks uh, on the phone in the early part of your efforts was, was the, was sales calls was kind of right. faux sales calls. Um, <laughs> and I'm sharing this cause it's in, it's in, it's in your it's article, in there, Yeah, <laughs> but tell people how that went. And then,
1: yeah, <laughs> it didn't, it didn't work. Uh, no. So what I was thinking is, you know, this small business is like most of the time, the founder is going to be the one doing the sales. Cause yeah. like I said, they have to get a certain size for a salesperson makes sense. So I figured I'll just book a sales call. It's a free way to get on their calendar. Right. And then try to like twist it into something else. Um, it was super freaking awkward and just not like, (laughs) not like it was not genuine. You know, this is, again, this comes back to like, I'm, I'm, I was learning my style and I'm like, okay, I'm just a, I'm just going to be straight up with these people. Like I I would rather someone be straight up with me. So I'm going to treat them the same way. So as simple as it, is to get on the phone with people by booking sales calls. It's probably a very low conversion. And I also realize it takes a lot of time. And this is kind of again where like I'm always tracking my time and optimizing like what do I actually need to be doing versus what is kind of like fluff. And I realized a lot of these calls were just fluff. Now I did, I will say we went through after we had an LOI and we started booking calls like sales calls with competitors before we officially own the business as a way to understand how they work and some of their like get some insight into their pricing, their process, their, what their sales process, et cetera, that was super helpful. And I would, you know, before you've got on your LinkedIn profile that I own this competing business, like go book sales calls with the, the people that are like, you know, in, in, that are competitors. Cause it's a great insight into how the industry works.
0: Yeah, totally shop them, shop the competition.
1: Yeah. To, uh, yeah. 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 Totally. I mean, and these were not companies that we were going to buy. So they were just, it was just a matter of like, we want to know how they operate especially the ones that are bigger like you mm-hmm. know, if you think about it we're going to buy one or a million in like total value but what are the ones who are at five or ten million mm-hmm. what do they do what do they look like what are they how do they act um because that's where we want to go and it's like we don't like i said with draft dev we don't want to copy verbatim what a competitor does because that's just not it's probably not going to work but we want to think about the the best practices they've learned and how we can apply that to our own style sure
0: sure and and going back to your industry thesis or, or if if quote unquote um yeah. wanting a podcast production agency there are players in this space that you saw that have gotten to 5 and 10 million so so there is a a path very to, few. to those kind of numbers yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah very few but there are um i think yeah, it's it's so hard to say again like because this industry's growing and and also a lot of them they do a mixture of things. So yes, podcast production editing, but also maybe they do podcast launch services or um, auditing, which we we do as well. Or maybe they do video stuff, which ends up getting more complicated and video production can get really expensive. So Mm -hmm. part of it, too, can be like their numbers can be um, really high because maybe they're the video service provider for Adobe or some huge company that pays them a million bucks a year to like run their whole video operation. So like you know, looking at the raw numbers is less important, like as far as like, how huge could you get and more about like, in this little piece of the market we have, do we have a good foothold and can it get bigger? And that's really what we care about. So yeah, I do think there's a pathway for this business to get well over 5 million in revenue in the next few years. Um, how quickly that happens will kind of depend on how well we operate, I guess.
0: Well, and also going back to and market, your, yeah. your point about fragmentation and how there's so many, so many small players out there. Maybe yep. you get to, you know, 5 million by acquiring 10 $500,000, right. you know, one, right. one man shows, one woman shows. Your, your um, head is right where mine is. Well, <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, what, one other thing to call out a huge thing to call out for, especially for anybody listening who, um, works in, uh, offline sweaty businesses, the, The nature of these productized services is their their working capital, um, the cash conversion cycle is positive. So you take the money first and then you pay it out to deliver the service after the fact. And, you know, coming from the digital world, this is always what I like. This was my normal. But now that I've been exposed to all of these, you know, the traditional businesses, it is not that way. And so cash flow (laughs) management, is this theme yeah. that comes up again and again, and even very smart people really struggle with it. It's a skill you you have to learn, and often um, people will will really get will really get squeezed, you know, in their first yeah. six months at this. So these businesses, generally, of course, it you know varies, but but um, as a general rule, you take a credit card payment, um, or, or or maybe it's an invoice if it's a big enough if it's a big enough spend, but you probably demand payment upfront, and then you deliver the service, which. Yeah, so that that's a fantastic characteristic that I had, you know, historically underestimated.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it it does I'll put the asterisks there cuz again, like mm-hmm. having run a couple of these now, there are exceptions to that, especially as you move up market. So draft.dev for example, we now work with a lot of publicly traded companies and we normally would take full like at least half but usually full price upfront and then, you know, we deliver the service over the next 3 or 4 months. Now, with a really big company, you may not have the weight to do that. If their payables department says, Nope, that's not the way we do things. You may just have to to deal with it. So okay. think about like know what that is. If you're buying a digital service business, because some agencies are more um, back weighted where they they charge for, um, you know, work after it's done because of the the nature of the companies are with or like just the way they do. But either way, if they have a frequent billing um, set up, that's definitely better than like long, long term, right? Because again, cash flow like this guy was invoicing weekly and mm-hmm. some like weekly and monthly depending on the client um which is great it means we're getting fast cash in you know and most people are paying within 20 days so it's like really fast like and so to your point yes great for cash flow we did get a little extra on our loan just to make sure that we had some cash in the bank on day one because we mm-hmm. we bought the receivables but we kept him keep the cash so um you know we, we want some cash in there but either way like It's it's been great because we've immediately like got positive cash flow going and like it's it's kind of stayed consistent. Mm -hmm.
0: Great. And but to be clear, I was wrong to suggest that he gets that he was taking payment up front. He is actually invoicing. Yeah,
1: he actually bills. Yeah. Yeah. Afterwards. And that's one of the areas I think we could improve. Um, You know, again, this is like that we bought a business knowing that there's some things, easy levers to improve. Um, we actually, I, I experienced this, this challenge firsthand with draft.dev the first year when we were growing really quickly and, and second too, um, we, (laughs) the very first part of the year, we had a negative cash cycle. We build clients afterwards. Um, And we were growing like doubling every three months. And yet we were running out of money and had no line of credit because it was a brand new business. Like I had no idea what I was doing either. So had nothing to draw and we get down to like, you know, we've added ten clients last month, but yet we have got five thousand dollars in the bank and can't, you know, not going to make payroll unless we do something quick. So that was a a good lesson to like move everything to upfront billing. And that's again, that helps a ton when you're growing quickly, because like growth sucks cash is like the, the phrase that people will tell you it's totally true so yeah if, if you see a business and you buy it and it's got this negative cash cycle if there's any way you can turn any of it positive it's going to be a huge win from like a especially as you start to really move the growth
0: growth levers up mm-hmm. excellent that's great girl okay okay so back to the story and the structure of the deal what did what did it finally look like
1: yeah, so we did the kind of what they describe in buy then build, um, where it's ten percent cash, seventy five percent SBA loan, and then a fifteen percent seller's note um, over five years at a fixed interest rate that we set early in the process. So we actually got a really, in hindsight, good deal on that because interest rates have kept going up. Um, whereas the SBA loan obviously is is going to be dependent on I think it's Wall Street Journal plus whatever their their markup is, right? So it's a little higher. Mm-hmm.
0: Great. Um- Okay. And it was basically a three X ish multiple that you paid? Yeah, a little
1: under three X. We had a couple of discounts for some key people, like one key person who was kind of transitioning out and we knew it and he was, the seller was very upfront about it. So we were kind of like, okay, what's well, that's something we're going to have to deal with and step in to figure out on the first few days. Um, and then the other big concern we had was the client attachment to the seller. And this is obviously like a big one for any really small business like this is like, Clients are really—they're still on sales calls and on regular support calls with the actual founder, right? And they develop a personal relationship. Like every client we talked to for doing background research, we we called several of his clients just to to hear what their experience was, and all of them had this very like—they they talked very positively about Matthew the seller and the business a little less so. Not that they didn't like the business, they just they thought of him as the the figurehead. Yeah. Yeah. So we knew that was going to be a risk. So we got a, we did. You know a little discounting for that because we we thought you know it's gonna have to be something we overcome but the sellers you know hanging out with us for six months to do the um to, to kind of hand everything off and so he's got a contract with us and he's been super great and honestly the clients have been very receptive too i they, they had very low client concentration about 80 customers they were active and so the good thing there is even if we lose a couple because they really liked the seller and they don't like us it's not gonna we're not gonna lose you know, like four clients wouldn't kill us. It's yeah. it's not the end of the world. I think that's really important, too, for um, for me, at least with any service business, I'm going to take over. I want to see a like very low concentration and a high volume of clients, even if each one is very small. Yeah,
0: for sure, for sure. Uh, and part of the reason that he was kind of the face of the business, at least at least from the perspective, maybe not the brand, but. Uh, actually, I think of the brand as well, um, but yeah. but certainly in the in the um, sales relationships and the client relationships was because of the way he started, which was he was an audio engineer. Tell t- the thirty second yeah. e- history of the business.
1: Yeah, yeah. So he he was uh, an audio uh, editor engineer at the Wall Street Journal. So had a, a great network in that finance space, and then kind of went off and and started doing this basically freelance, and then eventually hiring editors. He actually, had, I mean, we we inherited now twenty four editor, audio editors behind the scenes. So it's not like a tiny operation. He just made it look like it was by kind of being that point person. Um, So, yeah, the the other good thing about his background was that it attracted a lot of financial service providers who want shows. So we work with a lot of uh, VC, PE and um, uh, financial advisors, insurance companies and podcasting is a really great medium for them because um, they're they they You know, it's a long sales cycle and it's very trust based, right? So like nobody goes like nobody goes and switches to a new financial advisor because they got a cold email, at least nobody with any money that's smart. So you really need to be in their ears constantly or at least every week or month or whatever to like remind them how smart you are for months or years before they actually convert. And so for those kind of companies, it's a super great medium because you're you're really building that trust and you can do that consistently. So anyway, he had good concentration within this industry, which I liked but low concentration on a single client basis, which I also liked.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And, and, and what a niche, the money niche. Yeah. Um, yeah. so, so I VCs, P, yeah. VCs, PE and financial advisors, financial advisors are definitely not VCs and PE. So what's no, the yeah, kinda- it's,
1: it's the, the connection is just, the shows are talking about financial and business issues. I would yeah. say it's So it's a little yeah. broader than like, you know, I, I understand they're not the same business, but like, the way they kind of like think about their branding and marketing is actually not dissimilar mm-hmm. because, you know, with financial advisors, it's all about, again, long term relationship with potential clients and, and current clients with PE funds or VC fund. It's long term positive relationship with both the entrepreneurs for companies you want to buy and the limited partners you want to raise money from in the future or have already raised money from. Mm-hmm. So say, even though like it, it's they're different fundamentally as businesses, they can. They do a lot of the same things for marketing and brand building.
0: Yeah. 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 Great. And what, what was the seller doing day to day? What, what are you going to have to replace when he leaves? Was he all sales or was he actually still doing some production work himself or what did it look, that look like?
1: Yeah. So sales for sure. Um, you know, he had never done a ton in the way of marketing or like outreach. It was just all very organic, like word of mouth client referrals, which is great because uh, those have kept stick pretty steady since he, um, since he sold it. Um, and then, uh, the he was he was pretty active in the like seeing the production queue of what's going out and what's working it wasn't necessarily doing the audio editing much but when a client would have a question or a hot issue often went to him so we've had to kind of refocus that and shift that over to other team members which we've already done so like he's out of most of those those hot issues every now and then he'll step in when it makes sense, but very rarely. Um, and then we do a couple like kind of entry point services. So like a launch package where we get you from zero to your show first episodes out live. And that's a whole like process. Um, I've taken over that with another audio engineer. And so, uh, the seller stepping out of that this month and then, um, audits, which are very similar. It's like, look at your existing show, tell you what you could do better. And then, um, you get like, you, we can also do your ongoing editing if you want. Um, mm-hmm. And that's another one where I just am taking over those with another of our audio engineers on the team. So it's, they were, he had pretty good processes in place. He just was doing them himself. I think partly because he likes those things, right? Like mm-hmm. that's, he he likes to analyze podcasts. That, that's like mm-hmm. part of what he does. Um, so we may remove also some other, there's some services like he had, he would do one off consulting for people where he's just book an hour of his time for X dollars. And, you know, do it right from the website. We've removed that because that just doesn't make as much sense with the model we're moving towards. And financially, that was not a big part of the business. So we, we sort of knew that that was going to go. Um, but yeah, otherwise, we've, we've pretty much tried to keep things the same as they they were because he's, he did a good job building up a team and having some good processes in place. Mm-hmm.
0: And you said the business was doing seven to $800,000 in revenue? Was, was that right? Yeah.
1: Um, I think... That is right. As I was pulling up my numbers, the the way it it kind of shook out, the SDE was around 250 K. And then the total sales price was right around 700 K after, you know, kind of where we we landed. Um, So you can kind of divide up the percentages and figure out how much that was cash versus, uh, you know, seller note and SBA loan.
0: Yeah. Well, so if it's 200, if it's doing 250 SDE, And let's say for easy math, half of that's going to go to your loan. So that leaves you with 125 SDE, which is basically you live in Chicago. That's basically a full-time salary or less, but you've got a partner and you want to reinvest in the business. So I assume you guys are not taking any money out of the business for yourselves. You're reinvesting all of that 125 back in because you both your partner had an exit and you have income from yeah, debt. that's right sort of thing
1: yeah 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 exactly so yeah our goal is not to take cash out yet um you know what we're going to plan on doing is the, the the economic shakeout roughly to what you said and then what we're going to do is every quarter look at what's like the you know what we have in the bank that's extra and see do we want to pay down more of the loan do we want to invest in some big growth project Or do we want to pay ourselves some little bonus or some combination of those three things? Mm -hmm. So we'll I think at first, we'll probably be more aggressive on the loan payments just to get more progress chipped away at that. But Mm -hmm. if we see some opportunities for growth, like hiring a salesperson will be one of the first things I think would be great to do. We're going to wait till we know we can sustain that for a while. But um, I think uh, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities like that. Mm -hmm.
0: And when you said you have the eighty customers, and so so, and let's marry this now with a productized service. So, what what is the actual? What are these contracts? What is this revenue? How is it packaged? Are you do you have recurring contracts with these these VC firms or private financial yeah. investors that you're doing like they're their. their- total outsource their kind of their their podcast every month or is one offs or give us a picture.
1: Yeah, good question. So it's there's no there's no long term commitment or lock in with it, which is a little risky. I mean, I I could totally see why that would turn uh, some buyers off of a a company like this. Um, The contracts basically just say we will do whenever you submit work to us, we will invoice you this much for this kind of work. You know, it's a very like come as you will sort of thing Um, that may change over time. Like, obviously, I think there's room for improvement there, but at the same time, it's worked. And what I liked about, even though that's that's a slight risk, what I liked about the company as a whole is it's been steadily either growing or, or flat consistently for five years. It's not like, you know, he's got these fly by night clients that are coming in for one and done. The history shows us that these clients stick around for five years. So there's no reason to think that because we come in as new owners, that's going to dramatically change, right? I, at least that's I, I don't believe that there's any reason that we would think that. So I know that everybody wants you to have, you know, subscription revenue or recurring revenue and, and all that. And it's totally true. That would make this way more appealing. But at the same time, when you look at like service providers get a lot of momentum with the clients. And what I mean is the client knows how to work with us. They know our processes. They've built processes internally around our processes. So switching us out is not like a just drop in anybody else, because they don't know if the quality is going to be consistent. They don't know if it's going to be somebody they can trust. There's so many variables that go into that. So Honestly, I think that, um, and you know, this was something I'd seen the other business too. It's just like, once you get in with like good with companies, like they, they keep you around unless something dramatically changes in their environment, they, they stop doing the show or whatever.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and I just think it's important when you, when considering recurring revenue, which everyone wants for obvious reasons versus one off revenue is if you have a a business that you're analyzing, that's quote unquote, one off revenue. You, if you have repeat business, so, or reoccurring business, not recurring then you know the analysis you should do is what is the lifetime value the LTV of your customers cuz you yeah. may f- i mean that's ultimately what this what it's what it's really about because you could have a SaaS business that's recurring but with high churn in there you know so if so if it's if a technically recurring right, business yeah. but everyone only lasts all your customers only last for four months then churn out the LTV the lifetime value is is low so who cares that it's return, recurring yeah, but ultimately like right. the the metric kind of the KPI is the lifetime value of your customers and if 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 you can demonstrate that it's relatively high um yeah. it matters it, it'll get you a lot more comfortable with the fact that it that it might be you know it's reoccurring repeat business as opposed to pure recurring so. And it's yeah. and it sounds like you you guys have great LTVs and it's really sticky yeah that's, really sticky repeat that's business yeah. yeah yeah that's what we
1: felt like I mean because companies who see success with a podcast why would you stop and and you know honestly like our our rates are very reasonable in the market so like why would you go try to find a new provider like it's just a, it's not something that's worth tackling um, partly too you think about the opportunity cost right like if you're a uh, if if it's a relatively small financial advisory firm, like for the founder or even the chief marketing officer to go work through finding a new provider is, is significant. Like it's going to be a big project. Yeah. So what are you losing out on marketing wise when you have to do that instead of grow the business? It's just not a priority for people to go swap out unless we start screwing things up, in which yeah. case that's a different story.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I got a handful of more questions here, a handful of questions for you. Um, but I know we're bumping up against time, Carl. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go quickly. Um, yeah. Let's talk about the the nature of labor in your business. You've got the 24 editors. Um, so one of the things that is a struggle that even people outside of the world of buying businesses have seen headlines about or experienced directly is how tight the labor market is. And and certainly in like blue collar businesses and in sweaty offline yeah. businesses that many of my the, the audience will be considering, um, it's very acute. Um, so in your business, however, where the entire world is your labor pool, up you know Upwork, yeah. the magic of Upwork. Yeah. Um, my own uh, my own podcast editor. Shout out to Pam. I found on Upwork and love her. <laughs> she crushes. Um, do you find that it's like is there a, is there a a, um, a shortage there, or is it like if you needed to bring yeah, in fi- five it's... more people, like you could you could do that pretty readily?
1: Yeah. It's, it, especially at the, um, the hands-on level of editing, it's very relatively easy. I don't want to say very easy. We actually get a lot of inbound interest too, because we've been around and we've got, you know, people know the business, so they apply all the time. Uh, so we're always getting new applicants. Plus a lot of these people are connected to other editors. So the great thing about, I mean, working with a company that's all digital, when you think about like the perks it's not just the money so like you could you could be in we are all our editors are in canada u.s and uk but um oh. so that's uh, they're oh, so it's not high even
0: c- it's not philippines style no <laughs> no so we
1: don't we don't at this point um and it's it's a good thing for them because um a lot of them live in like more rural communities in these mm-hmm. big countries so like if you live in middle of nowhere nebraska right like and you're an audio person you a lot of these guys are musicians they, they do this on the side for good side income or for the their main income. And then the music is the side thing. Uh, that's a re- it's a really appealing job. You can do it anytime you want. You can do it at night, in the morning, middle of the day. It doesn't matter. Nobody's going to check in on you. Super easy, very straightforward rate where we pay competitively for the again, for these markets where it's a lower cost of living areas. It's great. So it's all just like it is geo arbitrage, but not as extreme, maybe as <laughs> you might see, like going over to the Philippines and the advantage there is time zones and um, cultural sort of norms. I, I draft dev. We work with writers, software engineers in 53 countries, I think. So like we're extremely global there and we have lots of people in um, uh, other parts of the world, totally different time zones. But the nature of that work is different. Mm-hmm. Podcast editing, we're a little tighter on our timelines. Like we usually need things like within 48 hours. And so you lose five hours or eight hours on time zones. You start to run into trouble. I, I could see a world where if we wanted to offer some kind of like Overnight delivery, we could have a team in India that did like you know, or Philippines or something that did the overnight stuff, and everything else went through our regular pool. I don't know, but like that's not something we're looking at doing anytime soon.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. Well, um, and just to to kind of emphasize the larger point here, that this is often true of digital serv digital productized services, yeah. where the labor shortage is r- really. I don't. I don't want to overstate it, but it really hasn't been felt at yeah, all. Yeah, it
1: doesn't. No, we don't feel the same way. I mean, there's the very skilled jobs, like management jobs are tough sometimes. And, and that's just true of any company. It doesn't matter if you're local or not. Like hiring good managers is always hard, um, whether you're bringing them outside or or, or uh, promoting. But um, again, we usually have enough pool of applicants that we can find some good ones in that stack. Mm-hmm.
0: So Carl, sorry, when did you close? How- yeah. When did you close? How long have you been yeah, in the business? Yeah,
1: uh, end of end of April, like basically the first week of May, we took over.
0: Oh wow. Okay. So it's just been a month and a half. Okay. Kind of a two part question, but related. What you bought would be considered quote unquote small for sure. this audience, and yep. um, and I think you and I, when we talked offline, you acknowledge as much. Like you you, you have felt that, yeah, that yeah. it's small. Yeah, Don't take that as negative. Yeah. Well, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so. Kind of talk about that and then just more broadly, how does it feel? Like how, how have these first six weeks gone? What what yeah. what, are, what are the takeaways? How would you distill your experience so far?
1: Yeah, I think I think for us, going small was the the right move. Uh, you know, again, I think everybody's experience and what you're doing is different um, for us. Knowing we were going to self-fund it and um, we wanted this to be the first of many, we know that this is just a stepping stone and it was, I don't want to say, as, I'm not going to be as flippant as to say it's practice, but it was like, Let's get experience. Let's get an at bat with something yeah. that is relatively small and therefore the downside risk is relatively low. Like if this goes out of business, we could still conceivably pay off that loan from our personal income or like we could figure out a way to get jobs to pay out like it wouldn't be the end of our, our, our careers. Um, now, that said, it stepping in, it is very hands on work. I mean, I'm on sales calls. I'm managing team members directly. There's not a lot of existing management structure, not a ton of uh, super established thing there's some processes but it's not like you know there's a lot of room for improvement there so like you have to be willing like obviously my partner and i are to get in there and get in the weeds and you know roll up your sleeves so again we came into this knowing fairly well that that was going to be the case so it wasn't a surprise and it's been all good so far honestly i think we've we've brought in some really quick wins that like i've mentioned like the team has seen and we've seen that have helped us close some, you know, some deals that may not have closed otherwise and some, uh, improve some things on the back end of like production that may have fallen through the cracks otherwise. So Mm -hmm. I think we're making good progress already. Um, there's some little things with like invoicing. We've already kind of cut down to just doing once a month. So it's more efficient. We don't have to have somebody going through every week to do that. We similarly with payroll, he was, we were running payroll daily up until he took over and we were like, okay, let's go to once a week. It just doesn't make sense to pay out every single day. Um, so some just little things like that, that really up our efficiency, I think is going to help a lot. Um, but we'll, we'll see. I mean, this is like you said, it's very early, so it's going to be like, um, yeah, probably six months before we really know how the, how things have gone.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well then my final question for you, Carl, uh, might need to be answered in six months, but, um, after six weeks in the business is your vision of a hold co, uh, stronger or or weaker in in terms
1: of stronger. Oh, yeah. But I think the shape of it has changed a bit or how it might happen. So, um, some things I've been thinking about, like the one of the big challenges now is how do we get these companies big enough to where they can have their own little operators like CEOs or GMs or whatever you want to call that title? Because you do have to be a certain size before that role really makes sense. Um, And how do we want to structure that? Do we want to have one CEO who runs multiple of these companies? Or do we want to have one who runs each business unit? Um, so we've been thinking a lot through that. And one thing i I think a pathway I've started to explore more is what if we went and bought, let's say another podcast production agency, we tack it on, we keep the owner and we give them a little piece to help grow it. Almost like a traditional PE fund would do when they buy a company, they keep one of the operators at least to kind of be the, the, the head and grow along with it. So that's been entering our thoughts of like, maybe there's, there's a path there that would allow us to avoid more debt, which would be nice because it also, it's, it's not necessarily easy to go back to the SBA and take a whole another loan to buy a whole nother business. What when you are still operating that one and still paying off that loan, right? I think I think it's technically possible, but I also hear there's a lot of resistance to that. So, like, you know, we may be able to skirt away from that and do something a little more creative. Um, but either way, it just means that like there's there's lots of paths. Again, this is why it's what's fun about entrepreneurship to me, is like there's no right answer. And either way, we're getting one little step closer to the goal. Um, so I feel very encouraged by it. I think also just seeing a business like this, that's this small, um, but actually is, has lots of little things to improve really quickly and just knowing that that's going to help it grow. It's like, it's really exciting. It's like something fun that you feel like you can get your, your fingers into and, and, and make real improvements. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I don't know. It's a, it, there's still a lot of fuzziness once you get more than a year out in my plan, but, uh, I feel like the next year is a pretty, I got a pretty good road ahead. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, your point about doing add-on acquisitions, um, partly with the goal of bringing on the owners of those businesses to to be the GM or operator, uh, is um, something that you see in the offline traditional business acquisition space yeah. as well. Effectively, what you know, it's effectively an aqua hire, which we associate with like yeah. you know Google and. Facebook acquiring like a little startup, but it's kind of effectively the same thing. Buying small add-on acquisitions sometimes is just worth it just to get access to the crew or or the leadership there um, and and, and fold them into your operation. So um, definitely something you see a lot. Carl, anything I didn't ask you that you would want to share with the audience? This was a, a great conversation
1: uh we you know we didn't get into like kind of getting to know the team and building trust with them and all that that stuff that's Mm -hmm. something that's i think is always interesting and challenging um especially coming from the outside and i not having i was nervous about this not having a background in audio engineering you know am i going to be credible or like are they going to be like is this you know yeah jerk off um and so far that has not been i mean everybody's been great the interesting thing about it like again this goes back to the digital businesses in a remote culture like this there's not a lot of meetings and need for like in-person interaction. And a lot of the employees relationship with us is a lot more, I'll say like light and hands off than you might think in a traditional business because they kind of treat it as, and this is not a negative. This is just how it it is, is like they clock in, they do their work, they go out and do whatever Mm -hmm. the hell they love to do, right? Mm -hmm. They're they're with their families. They're, they're just, you know, living life. And it's a, a huge perk for them. And they don't need to have a bunch of culture building at work. Mm -hmm. Work is work. It stays at work. And they don't want to, you know, do a bunch. So we are going to start doing some of that with the core team, the like more full-time people, but our like huge base of editors there. It's like, they don't really want us to go in and mess with things. They're like, as long as things stay the same and I'm getting paid, whatever, you guys, good, new owners, that's fine. You know, it hasn't been very, uh, no negatives there. So I think that's really interesting and and something to think about as you uh, amalgamate into the new company It's like, what is the culture that was already there and do you fit with that style or are you going to come in and try to like force a square peg into a round hole like if we you know all of a sudden tell all the editors we're going to make you you know zoom in every friday at three like that would totally break the 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 good thing they have going
0: totally what what a great point carl And, and and just two things to add to that first of all you know you had said earlier about folks in in maybe in the your editors are in expensive countries um, but they're maybe in more rural areas, and so they so so th- this is a job for them that they might not otherwise be able to get, and it's a great job. But part of it being a great job is that they can live kind of f- far away, and and they don't have to commute into a business or whatever. And so the appeal of the job, and part of the reason they're working for you is precisely so they don't have to do meetings. There isn't a lot of overhead yeah. to their to their to their day to day. Yep. And then just the kind of uh, the the larger point about not coming in to a business and all gung ho about anything really come in to listen into <laughs> and to, and to and really learn, yeah. and learn yeah. and really get a sense of what the the existing culture is because if yeah. you come in with preconceived notions you you really risk disrupting w- what's already there and the reason there's value baked into the business in the first place so totally. um you know you got to be a little bit more reactive than than some people who have the initiative yeah. and and have the hoods, but yeah. to go out and buy a business naturally, are, you know, are, are go getters and and probably want to yeah. put their imprint on things. But it, so and 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 so actually, I'm just as I think this through, it's like all this energy, all this willpower, all this like walking through walls to get a deal done. And then you got to pump your own brakes to be like, okay, now yeah, I got, now I got to right. bring, bring forward my beta self, not my alpha self, yeah. my beta yeah, self yeah. and be like a yeah. listener and be calm and like, and well, react it's like, to it. And there. it's <laughs> like, you
1: bought the business because it was a good business. Right. And that's why I say to everybody, when they ask, are you going to come in and change things? I'm like, I bought it because it's a good business. It on paper should keep working the way it did before we bought it. You yeah. know what I mean? Like I didn't buy it because it had all these big problems I need to go fix. Yeah. Um, there's some little things like, you know, again, the, you can try the little quick wins just to help, build some trust and credibility. But yeah, there's no need to go in and try to change the model or the pricing or the the big stuff on day one. I mean, I like sit back and learn the customers, learn what's important, and then you can start to roll that stuff out as it makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really gr- glad you brought that up, Carl. Carl, how can people get in touch? How do you prefer people reach out? Yeah, so I'm I'm pretty
1: active on Twitter and LinkedIn, uh, at Carl L Hughes. And you can, um, always put that in the, It's Carl with a K. So that'll probably trip you up if you're listening. Um, and then, uh, I write about this stuff at least once a month or so on my blog and newsletter there. So if you ever want to, you know, just follow along, that's a fun way to keep up, but I'm also ha- happy to answer emails. Um, you can, you can email Carl at draft.dev or Carl at the podcast And both those go to me. Um, because I always, I always like talking to other, um, searchers or people out here in the acquisition world that are just like learning. Cause you know, I learned a ton from the people who like on the show and people I talk to one-on-one. So I'm always happy to give that back. Appreciate the offer, Carl.
0: Thank you very much for coming on. What a fun conversation and story. And I'm so eager to see what next year looks like.
1: Thanks, Will.